1 Corinthians chapter 16. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. And when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable that I should go also, they will accompany me. I will visit you after passing through Macedonia, for I intend to pass through Macedonia, and perhaps I will stay with you or even spend the winter so that you may help me on my journey wherever I go. For I do not want to see you now just in passing. I hope to spend some time with you if the Lord permits, but I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door for effective work is open to me, and there are many adversaries. When Timothy comes, see that you put him at ease among you, for he is doing the work of the Lord as I am. So let no one despise him. Help him on his way in peace, that he may return to me. For I'm expecting him with the brothers. Now, concerning our brother Apollos, I strongly urged him to visit you with the other brothers, but it was not at all his will to come now. He will come when he has opportunity. Be watchful. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong. Let all that you do be done in love. Now, I urge you, brothers, you know that the household of Stephanus were the first converts in Achaia and that they have devoted themselves to the service of the saints. Be subject to such as these and to every fellow worker and laborer. I rejoice at the coming of Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achaicus because they have made up for your absence, for they refreshed my spirit as well as yours. Give recognition to such people. The churches of Asia send you greetings, Aquila and Prisca, together with the church in their house, send you hearty greetings in the Lord. All the brothers send you greetings. Greet one another with a holy kiss. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Our Lord, come. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, I pray that we might be spirit-filled as we listen, that I might be spirit-filled as we teach, that the flock would be challenged and encouraged today, strengthened. Even as Paul desired to strengthen the flock there at Corinth. Lord, use the word in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. So we come to the end of the book of Corinthians. Paul's written to these people in the first chapter. He reminds them of their supernatural salvation. And since they have supernatural life, they have an opportunity for supernatural living. See, often we kind of think about eternal life as beginning when we die, but your eternal life began the moment you received Christ as your Savior. In chapter 2, he said, because you have this new life, you will recognize the supernatural wisdom that's been given you in the Word of God. 
the problem is they weren't living like it. They, were, they, they had gone back to living like the rest of the world, worshiping like the rest of the world, doing business like the rest of the world, even to the point they were looking to sue one another. They were factious like the world is. I'm of Paul. I'm of Peter. I'm of Apollos. Oh, I'm spiritual. I'm of Christ. There was no unity because they were living for themselves. Even their communion service was polluted with that kind of faction. Those that had were gathering over here and they weren't sharing with those that didn't have as much. And Paul said, I don't know what you call it, but that's not the Lord's table. And he reinstitutes the Lord's table. Then he goes and deals with them in their misuse and abuse of spiritual giftedness. Because once again, it was all about self-serving. Hey, look at me. Look what I can do. And then he takes time off after 12 and he ministered to them, I think the high point of the book of Corinthians, 1 Corinthians, and that is chapter 13. He said, I show you a better way. Love like Christ. Love one another like Christ loved you. He died and gave himself for you. John wrote in 1 John 3.16, he said, little children, let us not love in, in word, but in deed and in truth. You see your brother has a need, and you don't reach out to try to take care of that need? How does God's love dwell in you? And we talked about the fact that you could take love and the, de the description of love there. Love endures all things. And just put Jesus' name in there. Jesus doesn't boast. Jesus doesn't seek his own. Jesus doesn't keep a list. Jesus endures all things. Jesus hopes all things. Goes back to 14 and he gives them another instruction. Now, you ought to be operating the spiritual gifts according to the word of God and according to love. Then he reminds them in chapter 15 that it's not about this life. Your faithfulness is what you're going to be rewarded for in eternity. It's not over just because you die. See, the world is get all you can, can all you get, sit in the lid because you just got to take care of yourself. He says, no, for the believer, remember, there's a resurrection. You're going to live forever with the Lord, and there's going to be accountability, what you did with the eternal life that he gave you. And the hope in every believer's life ought to be to hear, well done, faithful servant. You just did what I called you to do. You fulfilled the calling in your life. Paul even said in Ephesians, I haven't reached it yet. I'm not there yet. But forgetting those things which are behind, I stretch out and reach out to the high calling of God that one day Paul might hear from Jesus, well done. That's an accountability. God's not going to reward you based upon how much money's in the bank or how much real estate you owned. But were you faithful with your stewardship? And he ends chapter 15, the last verse. He says, therefore, beloved brethren, because this is not the end, because we have something higher we're striving for, that's the well done of Jesus Christ, for eternity with the Lord, be steadfast, 
immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord for as much as you know your labors, not in vain. In the last chapter, then he just reminds them, what are those main things? What are the main things? I'm told when Vince Lombardi went, took over the Green Bay Packers, he brought all these professionals, been playing football all their life, out to the field, and he said, this is a football. And they went back to basics. Coach Detai, when I was coaching with him, would say, listen, this is a simple game. It's about blocking, tackling, running, and catching. Simple. Not easy. But like a father, if your father's like my dad was, you're about to go on a trip, he's going to be away a while, he says, hey, check the tires. When I was younger, I didn't appreciate it so much. Yeah, dad, I know how to check tires, right? I didn't say that because I respected my dad and I feared my dad. But in my heart, I'm like, come on. Check the oil? Yeah, I checked the oil. Got your map? That was in the days before GPS. You know where you're going? Why? Because my dad loved me. He wanted, he wanted to take care of those things that maybe I'd overlooked, and Paul just reminds them of the basics again. Our Christian life is about our stewardships, about our stewardship of the work of the Lord. Are we making the main things the main things, or are we just going through life looking for our things and missing the opportunities that God has put in front of us? He said, I want you to remind you about the offering again. I think the church at Corinth had been pretty big talkers. Oh, I'm telling you, we're really going to give. Paul was excited about this offering, not only to meet the needs, but also because he was trying to always bring unity. It wasn't the Gentiles' fault, but the Jews had an attitude about Gentiles. So what are you talking about? Remember every time Paul would go to a town, he always started the synagogue, or if there wasn't a synagogue, a place of prayer, and the Jews were always glad to hear about the Savior has come, and then he'd say, and he's come for the Gentiles also, and they said, oh, we hate you. And so they caused problems, they caused a riot. Many times he'd get a beating, end up in jail. And so he was always trying to bring unity. That was the unsaved Jewish people, but there were still those attitudes. Remember Peter when he first went to minister to Cornelius in his house? And he got back to the council at Jerusalem, and they went to beat him up, you know, verbally. What are you doing up with those unclean Gentiles? And so he explained what had happened, the miracles. All the Gentiles also demonstrated the gifts of the Spirit. They spoke in tongues, and they're the same as we are. And they said, oh, good, glad you did that. But there was this ongoing conflict, and now that the Jewish people in Jerusalem were hurting under persecution and in desperate need of help, Paul saw this as a wonderful opportunity to bring unity because how can you have a bad attitude about somebody that's saving your life? But he didn't want these people just to be talking big and not giving. So he gave them some instruction about spiritual giving. Our, our attitudes about giving. Now, in particular, it's about a special gift. He's not ministering about tithing here. And just so you know, we're not under law. But tithing was a principle before the law with Abraham. 
When we tithe regularly of our income, that's the first 10%. That's just demonstrating, God, I know you owned me. Now, under law, because it was their government, they gave about 23 and a third percent every year because there was a tithe of the total, there was a tithe of the first first, and every three years there was another tithe for the poor. And when they're harvesting their fields, if you're a farmer, you didn't harvest the corners. You left that for the poor people to harvest. And if you're throwing your, your shocks of grain up on the wagon and one falls off, you just know God did that. And that's for the poor. You don't pick it up again, you leave that. God wanted his people to learn the joy of giving and to know that he was an amazing giving God. He was a good God. And he wanted them to have that same experience. All of creation gives. The most reluctant giver is the highest creation, and that's man. Because like the Jews of old, we just think we can do better for ourselves. We know a better way to have joy than God's teaching us. And so Israel didn't get it either. So you come to the end of the book, the Old Testament, Malachi says, bring all the tithes into the storehouse and prove me now. See if I'll not open the windows of heaven, pour you out a blessing, shaken down, pressed together, and running over. See if I won't be better to you than you can be to yourself. Trust me. So Paul reminds them, I want you to be open-handed givers like God is to you. There's this offering Don't miss this opportunity. He gave them some instruction. When to give, he says, on the first day of the week. Just like I told the church of Galatia, I'm telling you, that's when you worship. Giving is a part of worship. Romans chapter 12, verse 1. After he gets to the end, Paul gets to the end of that great doctrinal dissertation on salvation. He says, therefore... I beseech you, brethren, make your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God. This is your spiritual service of worship. Everything we do in life is giving. It's giving our time. It's giving our energy. It's giving our money. So he says it's part of worship. First day of the week. Why? Because that's the time when Christians traditionally worship. Now, Dr. Bill Barak is coming. And when he ministered in Bangladesh... Because the Muslims in that country were the majority, they worshiped on Tuesday, so Christians worshiped on Tuesday. And Paul gave instruction in Romans 14 that some honor one day more than the other, some every day the same. But traditionally, as believers, that when we have the freedom, we worship on the first day of the week because that's the day Jesus rose from the dead. That's the day that the Holy Spirit came at Pentecost. So he said, when you're gathering together, that's when you take the offering. And then he says, each one of you. In Mark 12, Jesus stood back and he instructed the disciples about giving. And he said, now see, here comes the big shots. And they kind of blow a trumpet and let everybody know they're going to write the big check. They dropped theirs noisily into the funnels that were there to collect the offerings. And everybody went, oh, Rabbi Big Britches, what a giver he is. Whoa. And Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, that's all they get. That's it. Whoa. That's all you get. If that's why you're giving, it's all you get. But then the widow came along. 
And you think Jesus, being a protective of the poor, would have chastised the priest for even allowing her to give because she had nothing. She had two mites. But Jesus recognized her faith. He knew her heart. And he says, now watch this. The disciples watched this poor widow silently, quietly, so no one would notice her because she didn't want people noticing she wasn't given very much. And the God of creation saw. And he said to his disciples, you see this poor widow? Yeah, she gave two mites. She gave more than all of them put together because she gave everything. So he said, God's not looking at the physical amount. He's looking at our heart when we give. And he wants our heart's attention. So he said, I want each one of you to pray about what you should give. That's the, what we practice here also. Paul visits the same subject, the same offering again in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and 9. And he says, God doesn't looking for somebody to give grudgingly. Or of necessity, if you don't give, this won't get done. No, that's wrong. He wants you to give because of your relationship of love with him. And all he's got to do is say, put it on your heart. You pass by somebody at Walmart, and you might go by the folks all the time, and that one day, he says, you'll give to those fellas. You don't know them. You'll give to that family. But you know because you have a relationship with the Lord, you're just supposed to do it. And so you say, well, how much, Lord? And you say, oh, that's kind of a lot. (laughs) That's probably the devil. We talk to ourselves and, well, I don't know if they're going to use it right. But you know God told you to give. So what do you do? You just give. It doesn't matter. And you say, hey, the Lord bless you. I'll pray for you. Just do it. God wants that kind of relationship with us. Psalm 32.8 says, I would guide you with mine eye upon you. Not grudging or necessity. He just shows you a need. And as a believer, you say, I ought to pray about that. We've divided up the offerings that normally kind of pile up at Christmas time because we want you to be praying, strategic about how you give. And so we've moved the traditional international mission offering to October. So we want you to start praying. What would God have you to give with reaching the nations? with other Baptists, together. I want you to pray about that. Not grudgingly. We're not going to put pressure. We're just going to remind you, you pray. We're going to have some films, I'm sure, that just kind of show you different fields that maybe you haven't thought of before. We just want you to pray. Paul's let each one of you pray about giving as God has blessed you. And then next we have Samaritan's Purse, another international opportunity to be able to send those shoe boxes and the gospel to all to children all over the world. And we begin to gather those, and those leave right about Thanksgiving. And then in December we have the angel tree. We bring gifts to children of prisoners and share the gospel with them. Somebody reminded me of my elder meeting yesterday that that's one of those offerings that you got to get to the tree in a hurry or there won't be anything left because we, we, you have a heart. We want to bless people. That's what God's looking for. So he says, the first day of the week, our giving should be based on 
not emotional appeals or feelings or a bonus income, but on regular, willing, prayerful giving. Who? Every one of us. And lastly, where? The local church. That verse there, verse 4, he says, or verse 3, when I arrive, whomever you may approve, I will send with them with letters to carry out your, carry your gift to Jerusalem. He said, you find spiritual men, just like in Acts 6, you find spiritual men, godly men, to deal with the money. Some churches, they, they like to get people involved, so they know that, well, Mr. Big Britches, business-wise, be really good to have him on a board somewhere because I think we get him on the board. This is the way the world operates. Get him on the board, they'll be obligated to give. Well, he's not qualified as a, an elder nor a deacon. Hey, we'll make a new office. We'll call it trustees and put them in charge of the money. Bad idea. Your most spiritual men are supposed to be in charge of the money. And that's what Paul says. You find godly men, and whoever you pick, they're going to be responsible. I want you to know, we take your giving seriously. A while ago, we had a young treasure years ago. And I said, hey, did you make the deposit yet? Oh, no, I'll get around to it maybe next week. I said, no, no, you won't. Get yourself up and get down to the bank. This is a stewardship. He wasn't, he wasn't thinking that way. He said, oh, I didn't realize. Well, realize it now. We've been given a trust, and we are going to be trustworthy. We have to deal with, because people have given from the heart, we've got to deal with it with our heart too. He said, you, you pick those men. And then he said, you lay it, store it up, and save it at the church. The idea was, th this word he used was the word for treasury, and a lot of pagan and, and, and uh, the world's religions, they had that. They stored them. Sometimes the, the pagan religion was the bank. So Paul used that word. He said, you store it up at church. So when I come, I don't I want people dropping dead because they're given for show, right? That happened before. And as in Sapphira, Acts chapter 5, they lie to the Holy Spirit, and they just want to impress everybody, so they thought they are like Barnabas. And Peter said to Ananias, why has the... Why has the devil stirred you up to lie against the Holy Spirit? And boom, he dropped in his tracks. So Paul says, you shouldn't be given because of necessity or grudging or because I'm coming. And I want you to add last minute, oh, we forgot. It needs to be purposeful, strategic, so when I come, it's already done. Then he says there in verse 4, and if it's good enough, I might go with you. If it's fitting for me to go also, They'll go with me. What's fitting? Every commentator I read had this idea that Paul was saying, I'm going to bring unity. I wouldn't know and tell them how generous you're going to be. If it's not generous, I'm not going to identify with it. You can send your own little paltry gift by itself. Just a little dad's advice. Live up to what you said you were going to do. You were really good about talking. Now be good about the giving. Let's, let's, let's get it done. And secondly, in verses 5 through 9, he talks about the stewardship that we have, each one of us, the stewardship for opportunity in ministry. 
Ancient Roman Proverbs says, while we stop to think, we often miss our opportunity. There are opportunities of giving. There's opportunities of sharing the gospel, aren't they? We've all felt the sting of that. We've had an opportunity, the door was open, and we just kept our mouths shut. And as soon as they walked away, the Holy Spirit said, what what were you thinking about? That was me. They asked those questions, and you were politically correct. What were you protecting? You weren't protecting them. But God is so good, because then we realize, oh, I know what an opportunity looks like. I will be faithful next time. I'll be faithful. Paul saw the opportunity there in Ephesus. And so he had to explain to them, I know you want me to come, but this is God's opportunity. And even though there's danger here, sometimes when we're weak, we think, oh, that's not God because there's opposition. Well, that can't be the Lord. I don't know who you're listening to, probably Joel Osteen, but there's going to be a challenge in ministry. Because you're on the front lines and Satan hates everything God created, including people that don't know God. He wants you to be discouraged. There's going to be opposition. In fact, many times, you know you're doing the right thing because there's opposition. It's like old Detai football. Nobody really had to scout us when John Detai was coaching. Old full tee backfield going up the middle. Or one time, I don't know, it was David or Ben that was playing, and my, dude, my guys knew already not to speak back. Clayton was still learning that. But uh, it didn't take him too long. He's a pretty smart fella. But uh, third and long, we're going to do a sneak play, belly 32. Oh, that'll get him. So d goes out, tough game, walks out, hitches up his pants, and he says, all right, we're going to run belly 32. And somebody in the backfield, I think one of the twins said, Coach, they can hear you. So I don't care if they can hear me. Walks over the opposing defensive line. He says, we're running through here. Now you block. Football got, the the fullback got the ball. And he got through the hole. We got a first down. But there was opposition because they even know where we were coming. Satan's smart. Paul said, I'm going the right direction. This is where I'm supposed to be right now. I know you want me to come. This is where I'm supposed to be. Sometimes he would be sure of the opportunity he thought that God had other plans. The key and principle to opportunity is his focus and flexibility. Focus, you're not just worried about what you want to do. What does the Lord want? Paul had the opportunity is coming through Asia Minor, comes out to the end. There's ocean there, and he thinks, oh, I'll go north. Holy Spirit for, forbids him, Acts 16. Well, I'll go to Kai. Lord says, nope. Ocean. So he goes to bed. God gives him a vision. Man of Macedonia says, Paul, come over to Macedonia and help us. He gets up the next morning. He says, I need to pray about that some more. He gets up the next morning. No, he said, he endeavored to go. Time to go. We've had that experience. A couple years ago, we were sure God had led us to put a new front of the building. We have more room. It just made sense to us. We had the money. That's the big thing, right? Don't pray as much about that. But we thought we were prayed up. 
got our plans all done, paid for the plans, took them to the city, and we knew right away the Lord was saying no. It was a resounding no. And you know what? When it's resounding, I love that. Because when there's a little crack in the door, we say, well, let me just see if I can talk to some people. I, 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 I think we can get through there still. When the Lord says no, it's no. I don't know what God was protecting. Maybe because he didn't need his waste and money. Because he wants to build us another building. Maybe he's coming back before we get something built. You know? We're moving. We're praying. God said no. We've been praying for Jason and Gretchen. We saw all these things coming together. Their hearts were high. We're ready to go. And all this long time waiting. Yesterday, they go to the door, slammed shut. We go, whew. Wow. That takes your breath away. Paul experienced that. But his eyes were in the Lord. It's okay, Lord. I'm your servant. I'm available. I'm willing to do what I want to do. Am I still willing to do what God wants me to do? We're going to have opportunities coming up. Pray for Carl. He's been so working so hard. We're looking at how we can minister to our flock better. There's going to be opportunities for you, maybe in Sunday school, the nurse, oh, no, I don't think I'd be good with kids. Have you ever tried? No. Well, maybe you could try it. Oh, no, no. Those teachers have been down there a long time, and if I sign up, I'll be relegated to the dungeon with them. No. Like God's really trying to punish you with children's ministries. (laughs) But what if, what if you got down there and you went, I had no idea. This is awesome. What if you found your joy in ministering to little kids? You could try it. What's the Lord want? Flexibility. Same thing happened to my son Sam, happened to Jason. That's why we hired Jason. Sam was ready to go to Costa Rica. Josh had left to go to seminary, and ultimately we know he's down in Mexico now. And we're going to need a youth pastor and a music guy because Sam was going to Costa Rica. We've been down there two or three times. The church wanted him. It was great. He was excited, getting rid of stuff, getting ready to go. And unlike a slam door, it was kind of like all of a sudden we didn't hear anything. Church lacked character. This, this church didn't. And so we start making calls. Nobody's answering the phone. Oh, it's guys in Wyoming. Finally, I got a hold of somebody down with new and they said, well, Sam going to want to preach every week? If he's the pastor, yeah, that's what shepherds do. They teach. Yeah, well, I don't think it's going to work out. Thanks for letting us know. Boom, shut. Said Sam, they don't want us. We're not going. That we recognize whether we agree with them or not, we recognize the authority of the church, and that's what we do. Maybe it's because God wanted Sam and St. George. We hadn't even thought of St. George at that time. Maybe God had more to prepare in Sam's. I don't know. God knows what he's doing, but we can rest in his sovereignty. We can rest in that. Just like Paul. Oh, different opportunity. Now he's writing to this church that he wouldn't have met. Had he gone the other direction, maybe. God was directing. And so we need to have focus on the Lord so he could just guide us with his eye. And flexibility, that's strength. That's not weakness. That's, oh, okay, we'll go this way. 
and not miss the opportunity. There are all kinds of opportunities. You know, we have a national ministry now, Techne, because Luke and Megan just thought, why don't we have some of these guys over to our house and feed them? I'm going to school with them. I want to see them come to Christ. Let's just have them in our house. About that time, David Grafe comes home from the mission field. He says, what are you doing? Well, I'm just having these guys in my house. He said, well, I could help you with that. They start a Bible study. Pretty soon, James Osborne says, hey, I bet you guys could use a garage, work on cars. Get those guys in here. Now other churches around the nation, other schools are saying, please bring this ministry to us. But they have to pray because they're not going to just go for the ministry. There has to be a local church that says, we want this in. How come? Because Luke just saw a simple opportunity to love some lost guys and have them in his house to feed them. You as a church are ministering in so many different ways around the world because somebody just listened and they followed God into the opportunity. It's an amazing thing. Next, Paul wants to talk to them. Last things, their stewardship about people. People. You know, money and opportunities don't mean much without people. My heart was knit to Dave Garrett's heart, Pastor Dave Garrett. Years ago, I didn't know hardly who he was. And there was a gathering of pastors. And they wanted to do some great big thing for the Lord together. And so they were talking about who they get in and have a big event. Pastor Garrett and all of his wisdom with his amazing Oklahoma accent radio voice said, fellas, you can get whatever want, big shot you want in here. The Christians all show up. It'll be a great time. We'll all be thankful. But if we want to win Laramie to Jesus Christ, then people are going to have to share Christ with their friends. It's about relationship. Warren Wiersbe talks about Dwight L. Moody, the evangelist, that he had the same gift that Paul did. Paul didn't only win people to the Lord. He was also busy making friends. That's just Paul. I wonder what it was like to go into the market and there's Paul. He's got his place set up making his leather goods like Kyle. Making harnesses and I suppose tents and whatever you make out of leather in those days. And he's right in the marketplace. Why? Because that's where you can meet people. You get to know people. This is a little Jewish guy and he's just so excited to meet everybody so we can share the Lord with him. You're making friends. He's not just talking about friends. He's talking about how you treat the Lord's people also. Dwight Moody possessed that same gift of making friends and enlisting them for the Lord's service. Some of the greatest preachers and musicians of the late 19th and early 20th centuries were found by Moody, including Ira Sankey, G. Campbell Morgan, Henry Drummond, and F.B. Meyer. Relationships. The Christian life is about relationships, about our family relationship, our relationship with our husband or wife, relationship with our children, and our relationship with our friends. And he's going to send his own son in the faith, Timothy. And Timothy was probably powerful in the word, but he was kind of timid. And he knew this is kind of an ornery horse. And listen, you better be nice. 
I'm sending the best down there. You better be nice. See, that's probably what happened in Scotland. They were going to be nice to Jason, and we were going to have to go and straighten some Scots out, and that would just be international incidents. So God said, let me just prevent that from happening, and we'll just keep Jason here, right? I don't know. But he knew that these people have a, a problem being nice to one another, and if Timothy comes to say the same things, he knew they had an ad about him. Oh, you're just here to Paul parrot what the Apostle Paul wants. So he said, no, you, you be nice to him. And by the way, I've talked to Apollos just in case you think that I don't want Paulus to come. I really urged him strongly to come. It was not in his mind to come. He's being directed by the Lord other places. If he can come later, he will, but he's not coming right now. And as I send Stephanus back to you and Fortunatus and Achaicus, I want you to submit to these men. These are godly men. These are men that risk their lives for the gospel. And no matter what you think about their personalities, God holds them in high esteem. You need to listen to them, and you need to recognize them for their sacrifice. How important that is to recognize people for their faithfulness. You know, when people come in to teach here, we're very particular about who we let feed our flock. We are. You are precious to us. But when they come in, our elders don't sit around and think how little we can pay them. That's never, since I've come, that's never been the issue. And I think God has blessed this congregation richly because you have taken such good care of people. I know when... Uh, Stephen came from Colonial to minister to us last year, and then Don gave him the check, said, whoa, 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 you guys. I'm like, yeah, there's something, aren't they? That's what Paul wanted for his congregation. He wanted to be able to say, yeah, there's something, aren't they? Like I think about you. So you can't outgive the Lord. You can't treat God's faithful servants too well. You can't. You take good care of me, take good care of our staff, he said, well, we only have so much. Oh, no, no. We're just the children. God's got the bank. And every pastor that's ever come through here says, wow, that church is something. That church is something. Some churches get so big, they got to be on a budget, so they only give so much. We don't do that. Somebody comes, they minister their heart to us, and then I go to the fellows, and I say, well, what do you think? I don't tell them what I'm thinking. And whatever we're thinking, we always go with the higher amount. Why? Because you cannot give the Lord. And we want to have a piece of that blessing in eternity. Whether it's our missionaries, people that come and minister to us. And Paul says, you treat those people right. Then lastly, verses 19 to 24, he talks about our stewardship of fellowship. The power of fellowship. Over 20 years ago, Lynn and I both went to Thailand. We had the joy of ministering over there and teaching through an interpreter. But the times I remember best were the times we're sitting on a porch, a wood porch with a tin roof, ministering in the shade to pastors and could not understand a word they were saying as they spoke in Thai. And later we were ministering to some people from Myanmar and they were speaking Burmese but our hearts were so close because we had the same desires. And so we had fellowship, even though there was a language barrier, we had this fellowship. And we, we had such a heart for those people. Went clear up in the jungles. 
and there's a pastor ministering to a little village out there, and our heart was knit to his because of the fellowship. But you know, we go places, we're excited about the fellowship because we're there by, by ourselves. But sometimes we get back in church and we think, well, that's somebody else's job. No, you have a stewardship of this fellowship also. Are you reaching out to new people? Are you desiring them to feel welcome like you feel at home? Are you bearing their burdens like we sang? Are you finding out what's going on in their life so you can pray for them? Or are you having a bad day so you just got to get out of here? How many times are we burdened? We think, well, I don't have time to minister, but we, we take the time and then God lifts our heart because we ministered the grace and we become a conduit for that grace. Listen, fellowship isn't just the elder's responsibility or the deacons of the Sunday school, the people that greet you. That's every part of the church is responsible for the fellowship. You see, a visitor may come in. That person might be hurting that day and you're the only one that spoke to them, but they go and they say, oh, my church loves me because so-and-so just put her arm around me and said, hey, let's pray about that right now. Let's just pray. Because Wookie gave him a hug that day. Hmm. Paul understood that responsibility, and that's why he says, listen, the church at Asia, they greet you. They greet you. Aquila and Priscilla, this faithful family, the whole family just gave themselves to the Lord. Sometimes they travel with Paul. Sometimes Paul could send them other place. Husband and wife, same business. Oh, yeah, I remember them. They want you to know. They say hi. They want us to greet you. They're praying for you. They care about you. Why is, it, why is that so important for us? It is. Talking to my mom yesterday on the phone. Before I get off the phone, she's now, you tell Andrew and Jill, I love them. You tell Hannah, I love her. And then she tries to name all the kids. Next time you see them, you tell them. There's a lot of them. Why? Because great-grandma got to get to see those kids a lot, but she wants to know, I'm praying for you kids. I love you. Paul knew the power of the simple phrase, I love you. He said, listen, I, I signed this with my own hand. I want you to know, these are not somebody else's words. The words of instruction, the words of encouragement, the words of rebuke, and the words of love, they're all from me. I love you. And then he gives this really kind of strange ending, almost the last words, and he says, Anybody that doesn't love Jesus, let him be a curse. You go, whoa. That's kind of strong. What's he saying there? The warning is against anyone who does not love the Lord. Such a person proves beyond a doubt that he does not belong to the Lord and therefore does not belong to the fellowship of God's people. If you don't love the Lord, you're not seeking to know the Lord, then you probably don't belong here. This is the wrong place. That's what he's saying. A lot of the problems in the church, because there are pretenders there wanting their own way, he says, I just want you to know I'm coming. Me and the Holy Spirit, we're going to figure out. That's what he's saying. And then he says, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. My friend Mike Fortman and I, he first got saved. We were going through the scripture together. We came to that part in the epistles and then again in Revelation. So now every time we pray, 
I always look at him if he forgets and he says, come Lord Jesus. Because that's what we're looking for. He said, the grace of God be with you. I'm praying that God gives you the power and the desire to be faithful. And remember, I love you. Father, we thank you for these words of instruction. These words that we are to have open hands when it comes to giving. That we just want to be challenged of your grace. Channels of your grace, not ours. We don't have that much. We want to be channels of blessings to those who are in the church and those that don't know you outside the church, to those special teachers that you send to bless us, and more, most of all to one another, that we might be a reflection of your love, that those in the world might say, oh, how they love one another. And Lord, help us to be focused on you, that we don't miss opportunity. Because Lord, the joy of ministry and seeing others come to Christ, there's nothing to be compared with it on this world. And Lord, more than anything, we want to be found faithful. And then we pray with the apostle in light of all the turmoil and sadness and sin in this world, come Lord Jesus. Amen.